Hello and thank you for tuning in. I am Michele Matarazzo and this is the MDS podcast, the podcast channel of the International Parkinson and Movement Disorder Society. Today we have a special issue and we are going to discuss about the COVID crisis that is affecting most of us and most of our patients. To discuss about this very relevant topic, we have the pleasure to have with us Professor Angelo Antonini, who is the director of the Parkinson and Movement Disorder Unit and professor of neurology at the Padre University in Italy. He is also the chair of the MDS European section. So hello, Angelo, and thank you for joining. Hello. Hello, everyone. and Thank you for listening. Well, as you know, we decided to do this special issue on the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic because there is a lot of uncertainty and, you know, we receive a lot of questions from our patients and colleagues on how to manage this situation and what we should do and expect. But it is difficult to answer these questions with all the new evidence that is coming up every day. As our listeners probably know, not only you have a long experience in the field as a researcher and a clinician, but you had also the unfortunate privilege of being in Veneto, which has been one of the most affected and earliest affected places in Europe from the, from the epidemic. So you have already more experience than most of us, and actually you have just very recently published a paper on the Movement Disorder Journal titled Outcome of Parkinson's Disease Patients Affected by COVID-19. And let's start from there, from Parkinson's disease. How does the COVID affect people with Parkinson's disease? And do you think that PD patients are more vulnerable or prone to severe disease? This is uh, a very important topic. And I remember mid-February when uh, Venice Carnival uh, had to be shut down because uh, the risk of uh, COVID spread. I got a lot of phone calls and uh, messages and emails from my Parkinson patients. Uh, we uh, were possibly with another uh, area south of Milan, the first uh, to lock down a small village, which presented a significant increase of uh, cases of pneumonitis, pneumon pneumonia and respiratory problems. So at the beginning, uh, I wasn't fully aware, to be frank, uh, uh, about the complications uh, that this virus uh, could trigger uh, in many people, particularly those with chronic neurological diseases. And I think that the Parkinson's are not an exception. Uh, they are not specifically prone to the disease. Uh, however, there are significant uh, risks, uh, particularly to those uh, who have a more advanced stage. Uh, as we know that Parkinson's disease uh, frequently impairs uh, the uh, ability that people have to inhale and uh, breathe uh, deeply. So uh, any problem uh, which uh, might limit uh, uh, respiratory capacity will have a negative impact uh, on the well-being and on the physiological condition of the person. So another another aspect which uh, over this uh, now two and a half months uh, we have been dealing with the virus has been to understand that, that this uh, virus, this COVID-19, um, is not only dangerous because it can trigger severe respiratory problems through the interstitial pneumonia, but also because uh, uh, the risk of a severe coagulopathy. And I think none of us was actually prepared uh, in dealing with that. So when we read uh, the first reports of neurological complications uh, from China, 
uh, and uh, the first a few people started dying, uh, both uh, in my region and in the region south of Milan. The autopsies uh, started showing that the problem was not necessarily only the uh, ability to breathe and uh, oxygenate the blood, but also the severe coagulopathy. And this is something which uh, uh, required the significant changes uh, in people's habit and also uh, the introduction uh, maybe of uh, heparin and other uh, products to prevent the blood uh, from uh, building up uh, clots uh, around the body. So uh, I think that Parkinson by themselves uh, are not necessarily more prone to the disease. Uh, to the COVID-19 disease or to the SARS, the severe acute respiratory syndrome. But uh, I think that anyone uh, who has a chronic condition, neurological condition, uh, may uh, be at risk because it could suffer more severe consequences than anyone else uh, who's in a better health. Excellent. I think you touched upon most of the important aspects already. So Parkinson's does not seem to be a risk factor by itself. But as you were saying, it is a chronic neurodegenerative condition, which is synonym of frailty, especially in advanced patients. And also we have to keep in mind that Parkinson's prevalence increases with age, and age is certainly known to be a risk factor for severe coronavirus-related disease, which is something that we should be aware of. Also, the link between Parkinson's disease and COVID is something very intriguing. And I think you mentioned in your article a few reasons why we should keep an eye on this. The hyposmia is one of them. Smell and taste impairment are very common in coronavirus infection, and hyposmia is certainly known to be a common and early symptom of Parkinson's disease. Also, you mentioned that ACE2 receptors, which have a very important role in the COVID infection, are widely spread in the brain, and more specifically, they have been found in dopamine neurons in animal models. Finally, you talk about the presence of antibodies against other coronaviruses in Parkinson's disease. So, do you think there may be any pathophysiological relationship given all this evidence you were mentioning? This has been uh, one of the first few things that intrigued me uh, about this uh, viral infection. Uh, and it did uh, also accidentally because uh, my young collaborator got the disease. And the first symptom that she had uh, was uh, a loss of smell and taste. And as a matter of fact, uh, due to the uh, loss of smell, uh, even if she had uh, no respiratory problem, uh, she got tested and she resulted positive. So uh, we were accidentally among the first in the world to realize that this is uh, something which uh, uh, could be some, somehow a sort of pre-early uh, marker uh, of the viral infection. Uh, so for those uh, of my age uh, who have started uh, dealing uh, with Parkinson's research uh, in the early 90s, uh, before the discovery of uh, the numerous genetic conditions and definitely before the discovery of uh, uh, synuclein uh, as uh, a key uh, marker of the disease. I could remember uh, the viral hypothesis uh, as a trigger uh, of the uh, Parkinson, uh, which was quite popular uh, in the 80s, in the 90s. And it came uh, from far back, uh, particularly uh, from the number, numerous cases 
of uh, uh, encephalitis and uh, that were observed uh, with Parkinsonism uh, in the 20s uh, and also later uh, there are there were many other reports uh, of people developing Parkinsonism as a consequence uh, of uh, viral infections. So the loss of smell and taste, uh, we all expected it to be temporarily. But uh, to be frank, uh, now the very same junior doctor uh, works with me. After two and a half months, uh, she hasn't still recovered uh, her sense of smell and taste. So it seems it goes beyond uh, potentially the uh, simple loss of smell you might observe in the course of the viral infections. And we know that the coronavirus have a specific uh, neurotropism and they may actually enter the brain. So studies conducted in the 90s demonstrated the increased coronavirus antibodies in the CSF of people with Parkinson. And we never really came up with an explanation for the loss of smell in Parkinson's disease. Uh, we know this is a premotor symptom. We know that it can precede uh, motor disability onset uh, by five, ten years. But we don't know why this is happening. We don't have a clear hypothesis. We don't, we know very little about the mechanisms of triggering uh, loss of smell and why this is uh, somehow heading the degeneration in the substantia nigra. We speculate that this is occurring uh, through the entorenal cortex and the limbic system. We know that the olfactory bulb is in direct uh, contact with the environment. So uh, all of these aspects are making uh, this topic uh, of a, a coronavirus infection even more interesting as uh, many people uh, have had uh, the loss of smell and taste as a unique uh, symptomatology in the context of the disease. Some have recovered. Others are still complaining about this disturbance, although their PCR uh, is negative in the blood. They have IgG antibodies and they're potentially perfectly uh, cured. And nonetheless, the symptom stays. And we speculate uh, that this is uh, because uh, there are uh, ACEAC two receptors in the brain, and they are particularly expressed in the dopamine cells. So one of the thoughts that I had initially was, um, well, uh, since uh, patients with Parkinson have lost their dopamine uh, neurons, maybe uh, they would be somehow protected from uh, uh, this symptomatology. And this is uh, the spirit when we started to collect data together with a colleague. Uh, at King's uh, College in London, Rachel Oduri was, let's see if uh, people with Parkinson are less likely to develop uh, severe complications. Unfortunately, uh, as time passed, uh, we realized that, that uh, this is not true. So even if uh, uh, the dopamine system is down in Parkinson and with that also the ACE2 receptors are down, nonetheless, uh, they symptomatology was quite severe in advanced Parkinson patients. So I think that the uh, there are a lot of issues uh, which might represent uh, what we are now calling a sort of a neuro-COVID uh, condition, which may last, uh, outlast actually the viral infection. And we, of course, uh, hope that this is not going to trigger uh, neurodegeneration, but uh, we are following up uh, a very large cohort of people uh, with this problem 
because we think that the few are affected uh, in the late 40s, 50s, maybe, uh, and there is virus entering the brain, uh, maybe the uh, compensatory mechanisms uh, which uh, could be triggered by uh, the damage induced by the virus are not that efficient as in young people. And this could potentially lead uh, to uh, abnormalities in protein aggregation. So uh, I don't know if uh, long-term uh, these people will develop any form of uh, Parkinsonism, but I know that they uh, hyposmia and uh, uh, adusia, they are lasting uh, a lot longer than uh, the viral infection. Uh, well beyond uh, that many months uh, now, a couple of months uh, after people have recovered, they still have the symptoms. Wow, you raised so many interesting and intriguing questions on this topic. I guess in the next few years we will have to find out the answer to all of these questions, but there is a lot of work to do. Let's just remind our listener that so far there is no evidence of any link, and we obviously hope this will not be found, but there are reasons to look into it. Now, going back to the real-world clinical practice, what have you recommended your Parkinson's patients? Is there any specific suggestions you want to give us? First of all, uh, the suggestion I gave them was to limit physical contact uh, with anyone uh, who was uh, not staying in the house with them. And if they had uh, grandchildren or children, uh, we are going out to work and uh, other things. Maybe they should limit contact with them as well. I think I've been particularly lucky because uh, these uh, suggestions uh, were respected by most patients. So they uh, considered, they took that very seriously. Uh, we uh, shifted uh, the way to get in contact using more telemedicine or email exchange to in case of uh, adjusting medication dose or uh, renewing uh, prescriptions. So uh, this has really produced, uh, I think, a very good outcome uh, so that the Parkinson patient who got infected uh, in my clinic uh, and uh, we are three movement disorder neurologists and we follow over a thousand patients with Parkinson. We are only two so far. But those two were actually staying in, uh, in uh, nursing homes. And nursing homes are very vulnerable. We have learned this uh, all over the world, so that if the virus enters a nursing home, it is just really, really like uh, tossing a coin. And uh, the two patients I had, in fact, one passed away, unfortunately, and another one uh, turned out to be positive simply because everyone in the nursing home was tested. But she never developed any symptom, although she is bedridden and very severely affected. So uh, positivity to the uh, throat swab I mean, doesn't necessarily lead to symptoms in Parkinson. This is uh, something which I witnesses. So the reaction of the body to the virus is quite variable. I think it's unpredictable. And what about the impact of the lockdown? I think this has had uh, consequences uh, in terms of uh, mobility, uh, but uh, I think the, the risk uh, was that if they got outside the house, uh, uh, they could be easily infected. And then uh, the uh, consequences we saw uh, in our series uh, resulted uh, in four people dying out of 10 uh, infected, two 
recovering well for uh, staying in the in a severe respiratory with severe respiratory problems for a relatively long time. So I think if you get the viruses uh, for Parkinson, advanced Parkinson is really problematic. So it is better not to uh, take any risk, in my opinion. So as you were saying, probably the prevention here is the key. So probably the best recommendation for our patients would be try to do exercise and activity at home if you can do it safely, but try to stay home and to avoid contact with any person that is potentially affected with the disease, because this may have a devastating impact. Another question that patients, but also the specialists, are asking us is what we should do with Parkinson's medication. As far as I know, dopaminergic drugs such as levodopa seem to be quite safe. There is no very serious interaction with drugs that are commonly used to treat COVID, but there is some risk of QT prolongation, especially with some drugs that are often used for some non-motor features of Parkinson's such as antidepressants or antipsychotics or cholinesterase inhibitors. And so some precaution is needed in these patients. Do you have any other suggestion or any other experience in that sense? Well, the indications I gave uh, to the intensive care unit uh, when we started dealing with this and uh, we had our first round of uh, meetings uh, was uh, that of course, one should try to continue to administer levodopa if you can, uh, but in case uh, a person needs to be intubated or ventilated or uh, there are, uh, there is, a, there are signs of uh, severe respiratory distress or, uh, or coagulopathy, then uh, I suggested the roticotin patch. This is something uh, which uh, I've been consistently doing, uh, which is easy, you know, we got uh, at some point uh, overwhelmed with people uh, with uh, SARS. So th there is a problem in administering, you know, switching maybe to apomorphine subcutaneous infusion or doing complex things. So that's why the roticotin patch in extreme cases looked to me as the best option to continue uh, delivering some dopaminergic medications. We have learned from the series uh, in the UK that also people who had DBS or duopa, duodopa infusion, unfortunately, were not protected. So continuing dopaminergic medications or continuing deep brain stimulation, unfortunately, was not helpful uh, in those cases. There were some talks about the potential use of amantadine. Amantadine apparently it might inhibit uh, viral replication. I think that the amantadine, uh, although potentially interesting, uh, is quite risky in these people for the QT uh, prolongation, as you mentioned, as many other drugs do, uh, and also because uh, the risk of confusion. And uh, if you are under respiratory distress, or you have diffuse uh, coagulopathy, I think it becomes quite difficult to deal with this person if also there is uh, acute psychosis or confusions or hallucinations. So uh, I think the best advice would be to shift to levodopa monotherapy if possible, and if levodopa uh, has to be or as levodopa associated with a patch, the patch can ensure continuous delivery even a condition where it is difficult to uh, put a nasogastric tube or 
maybe uh, give levodopa uh, orally through or even administer through a PEG. So this is, has been the advice uh, so far. Luckily, as I told you, uh, we had to implement it only once. Uh, but uh, beside that, uh, the patients that I had uh, were quite safe. But I know from other neurological patients uh, that the problems uh, that they encountered uh, during the ICU stay were quite remarkable. Well, thank you for these very useful tips. I am sure this is going to be very useful for a lot of people who is dealing with the pandemic right now. I think we covered most of the questions on Parkinson's. Now, let's focus briefly on other diseases. What is happening with other forms of Parkinsonism or other movement disorders during the pandemic? I guess that most of the recommendations we did for Parkinson people are also valid here for other movement disorders. But is there any other specific aspect you want to touch upon or comment? I think the, I, the same recommendations I gave to the Parkinson, I gave to people with dystonia or uh, Huntington disease or uh, ataxia. So the situation was not different, I think. They are, uh, although, although, of course, uh, um, in some conditions, uh, the respiratory problems uh, are less problematic uh, compared to what you might see in Huntington uh, or uh, in, in advanced Parkinson. In terms of uh, um, use of uh, specific uh, procedures like botulinum toxin injection, uh, this has been an issue. We try to uh, limit the number of people coming in uh, for Botox, uh, for injections during these two months. Although we did run uh, two clinics, we were also concerned in uh, doing new DP range stimulation patients. And we started basically in April uh, during the, the first month during the first uh, round of acute cases, so we stopped also doing the DBS in Estonia and Parkinson, and we started uh, shortly before Easter, so mid-April. So I think that in the routine environment, we are going to start living with the virus and with the risk. Uh, what we will do, um, and for the Parkinson, the movement disorder patients more generally, is... Uh, to let them in uh, for appointments, uh, trying to keep uh, a sufficient time uh, between visits. So we really want to prevent uh, too many people uh, coming in. They've been instructed uh, to have just one accompanied person in case that they cannot come uh, by themselves, which is the case of many movement disorder patients. And also the use of uh, facial masks, uh, protections, uh, I think this is mandatory, uh, I think, and uh, we will try to keep the distance. And uh, But to be honest, uh, they, it is a challenge. So we will start getting back to routine. And uh, routine means uh, that the virus is still around, but we need to start seeing people after in person after two and a half months. Whenever possible, we will use telemedicine. We have a specific software. Uh, we can make phone calls and uh, quite remarkably, our uh, national health system has authorized reimbursement for visits uh, done uh, remotely via the Internet or by phone. So I think this is uh, uh, what it means uh, living with a virus. And this is something which everyone in the world will have to do in the coming months, uh, trying to find a balance. 
and hopefully uh, limiting uh, the risks uh, to the minimum. Yes, it seems that we will have to adapt to this new normal right now. So, well, thank you very much for this very interesting conversation. And thank you even more for these tips and suggestions you gave us. And I'm sure that they are going to be very useful to, for our listeners and also for myself. In the next issues, we are going to keep focusing on the movement disorders in times of COVID-19. So keep listening to our podcast for more information. And thank you all for listening.